What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. This is the Tom Hartman Program. On the line with us is Gary Washburn. He's the NBA Celtics reporter for the Boston Globe and covers other sports issues, bostonglobe.com. G. Washburn Globe is his Twitter handle. Gary, welcome to the program. I wanted to talk with you about this whole thing that Brian Flores is blowing open. It looks like there's a scandal here occurring at multiple levels. And number one, the whole we got to check the box scandal. And number two, the let's throw some games and let's make sure that when we throw games to get better draft picks, that it's always black coaches who are throwing the games. Am I understanding at least the tip of this iceberg? Well, I do believe that there has been an inherent kind of discrimination against African-American coaches in the NFL, obviously for decades. The fact that there's only one coach, African-American, in the 32-team league, where the league is 70% black, Flores has an issue, and many people have an issue with that. They are qualified candidates who can run their teams just as good as, as white males can. Yeah. So what Flores is talking about is basically he wants to call out the NFL for its discrimination practices, and he basically was told to interview for a job with the New York Giants when they had already decided on who they were going to hire because they wanted to check a box for the Rudy rule, which mandates that every NFL team interview in person a minority candidate for a coaching position. If they don't, they'll be fined or penalized by the NFL. The Giants wanted to avoid that penalty, so wanted to bring Flores in on a Thursday when they had already made the decision on a Monday for whom to hire. Right. So I think a lot of people don't understand the whole draft pick thing, too. I've known for years, in fact, have pointed out that whichever team is kind of at the bottom at the end of the year gets the first draft picks and therefore presumably the best draft picks the next year. It's, it's kind of like progressive taxation, giving people a chance when they're down. And please correct me if I have any of that wrong. I don't much follow football, but that's my understanding. But, but, but what I didn't know is that the owners were actually instructing their managers to throw games to make the team really, if you could make the team really bad for one year or two years, you can accumulate a whole bunch of really great draft picks and have a three or four good year run. Am I getting that right? Yes, because if you look at any sport in the draft system, the worst team gets a chance to pick the best players who are available to draft coming out of college. So if you're the worst team in the NFL, you get the number one pick. 
So Flores is accusing the owner of the Dolphins of offering him $100,000 per game to lose so they could get a favorable pick in the 2020 draft because that way you get a franchise-caliber player, someone, I mean, maybe not on the Tom Brady level, but someone on a level who can carry your franchise for many years. You can win, maybe have a chance at the Super Bowl, uh, playoff appearances. It makes you a lot more money in the long run with a franchise player. If you win more, and the, the worse pick you get. So Flores is accusing the owner, Stephen Ross, of essentially saying, hey, here's $100,000 because I know you're on the take. Lose games, but try, but lose. And then next, we'll get a draft pick who's favorable. Then we can try to win next year. And Florence refused to do that. There's a major issue there because you have fans of the Miami Dolphins who are paying hard-earned money, a lot of money, to go to the game, to park at the game, the concessions, all of the bells and whistles that come with going to an NFL game. It's a very expensive experience. They are paying to see the Dolphins win. They're not paying to see the Dolphins lose. So this is a major accusation. Yeah, we're talking to Boston Globe sports reporter Gary Washburn. Gary, has anybody ever alleged in the past that games are being thrown? I mean, I know in the betting world, you know, that's the kind of thing that in the legal betting world gets you thrown in prison and in the illegal betting world gets you killed, number one. And number two, apparently, is there a pattern where most often if if they're going to try to throw games, they're going to ask black coaches to do it because they're presumably i'm guessing that these white owners are just basically thinking oh yeah these black coaches their careers are disposable am i putting too much evil into this evil intent into this yeah well tom i don't think that it's only a black coach thing there have been other coaches white coaches who have been asked or know that they're supposed to lose games but this happens in professional sports the philadelphia 76ers for years lost games on purpose to get better players, and they end up getting superstar center Joel Embiid and another player, an all-star, Ben Simmons, because they basically were absolutely terrible for two or three years. And so this is something that's been more happened a lot more over the recent years where teams just make it clear, listen, we're rebuilding. It doesn't benefit us to be average and to not get a better player. We'd rather be terrible for one year or for two years and get good players. I think what Flores is saying is is that, one, he was asked to throw games by his owner, and two, fired by the same owner for not winning enough, so the fix might be in there. Mm. And then I think it's the Houston Texans hired David Culley, who was 65 years old at the time, for his first NFL job to lead a franchise whose quarterback is facing sexual assault allegations, and so their best player was not available to play. They put together a bunch of journeymen and less caliber players. They went 4-13, and and they fired him after one year. So he was basically set up to fail. And that's what I think black coaches are saying. We're being put in situations where we're either designed to lose, instructed to lose, or the fix is in, and then we get fired, and then here comes white coach to save the day. And I think Flores is like, listen, I was asked to lose, and then I get fired two years later for not winning enough. There's a problem here. And I do think these are some legitimate accusations. Um, there are coaches who are saying, one coach, Hugh Jackson of the Cleveland Browns, saying, hey, I was asked to lose games also. Okay. Wow. Now, I don't know if that's a race thing or an incompetence thing or an owner 
who's trying to sacrifice now for the future and who wants to make money long term and is willing to lose money and lose games short term. That's a greed thing as opposed to a racial thing, but it's still a preposterous accusation. Gary, is it a criminal thing? It's a reason that if it's proven true, it's a reason that an owner could lose his team and be forced to sell. You don't have anything in writing. If you don't have anything like, oh, you know, a payment made. Now, the coach said he denied. He did not accept the offer. So it's one man's word against the other. So, yeah, if this was proven correct, okay, this is a situation where, yeah, the owner could lose his team. Because the goal, regardless of what you are trying to do inside, on the outside should be you're trying to win games, especially in the NFL that makes so much money in a league that is so followed by fantasy people and the people you mentioned in Las Vegas, the betting people. I'm sure the betting people would have something to say about teams potentially trying to lose. They'd like to know that information before they get back yeah, on these games. You think? I'm looking at Brian Flores' career and thinking of Colin Kaepernick. He took a knee, as we all know. He never played football again. I mean, that killed his career, and he was one of the best football players out there. Does Brian Flores have a future? And what does this say to future whistleblowers or people speaking out? Well, Tom, this is why probably many coaches haven't spoken out before, because Mm -hmm. they know that they could potentially sacrifice their career. Brian Flores may never coach in the NFL again. He might. It's going to take a team to hire him. But he is suing the NFL, which has the 32 teams. So he's suing the entity for which he wants to work. Okay, that's a very difficult and touchy situation. So does the NFL say, do not touch this guy? Do they make a couple of phone calls to the teams that might be? Because there's five jobs remaining that are open. Flores is candidates for two in Houston and in New Orleans. Hmm. uh, Does the NFL call Houston and New Orleans and say, listen, do not hire this man privately? Or do they say, okay, and then Flores takes over and the team looks great because they hired they, made, they took a chance, and they hired someone who yeah. was making such a, a bold stance. It's a delicate situation, and I think Flores realizes that his career in coaching in the NFL could be over. He might coach in college. Maybe he'll coach high school or his, his son's Pop Warner team or something. But it could be, considering he has filed a lawsuit against the NFL and three of its members, he might have coached his last game. To what extent do you think that this is going to produce some changes in the NFL and broadly, more broadly in our entire society. It seems to me like this is a really big deal. It is a big deal. I don't think the NFL will change. The NFL denied everything. They sent a statement out that night and denied it. So I don't think the NFL, people are not going to not watch the Super Bowl because of this. People are not going to want to have a fantasy team or bet on People are not going to boycott the NFL because of this. The NFL is a train that's going to keep going, an unstoppable movement, right? So they're not encouraged to change at all. So I don't think this will encourage them to change. Gary Washburn, great sports reporter for the Boston Globe, bostonglobe.com, G Washburn Globe on Twitter. Gary, thanks a lot for dropping by. I really appreciate the information. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Jason in Homestead, Florida. Hey, Jason, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom. I was just calling about the NFL and, mm-hmm. the, and the head coach situation. Yeah, we got a second and, coach uh, now coming out and saying, I was, I was told that I'd be paid to throw games. Yeah, exactly. And, and I got a good perspective in the fact that politics and football are equally important to me to the, to the 
I guess some people would consider crazy extent. And I love that you brought on some sports, but political sports angle to your show, which mm-hmm. I would prefer free speech do more of this, but because I kind of miss watching your channel that there's no sports on there. Right now I'm boycotting a lot of football and everything because of the pandemic and because of the what happened to Kaepernick and stuff like that. But I, in my lifetime I spent watching the Miami Dolphins, watching the NCAA, watching the Miami Hurricanes, that sort of thing. And I'd have to say that with this tanking idea is that it's not always successful. And people have to realize that, especially people that don't know sports, most of the time it isn't. It fails. Because you still have to draft the players. You still have to know what you're doing. And also, you know, there's the fact that two of the most successful teams in the history of the NFL, I mean, I like New England Patriots because they cheat. Literally, I could say that on air and it could be proven, so they cheat. But they also have both the teams, the Pittsburgh Steelers and New England Patriots, have a process where they simply say, we will release expensive players because we're under a salary cap and then replace them. Now, they're not cheating by losing games, but they do the exact opposite. And they are the most successful. They have the most Super Bowls of any other team. They win the most. The best coach, by the way, I just heard this on The View, which I don't usually watch, but they had it, this issue on. And the, the guy on ESPN said that the black coach, the only black coach in the NFL right now is in Pittsburgh, and he's the most successful coach in the first 15 years of his career ever. Yeah, yeah. So and that just tells you, you know. My sense of this, Jason, and let me just reality check this against, you know, you being a guy who's very knowledgeable about sports and me being a guy who just, you know, it's just entertainment to me and I only occasionally watch, is that the NFL is like the last bastion in America that is not purely corporate, that is basically a kingdom. I mean, this is the last, exactly. you've, got, you've got 32 teams and 31 of them are owned by billionaires. One of them is owned by a corporation, it was, you know, it was started by the Meatpackers Union in, in uh, Wisconsin and thus the Green Bay Packers back in the day. And so it's a corporation. And in fact, it used to be a very kind of nonprofit thing, exactly. and, you know, community thing. And it seems to me that if you want to reform football, that what you need to do is say individuals will no longer own teams, that, that, these individ, that these teams around the country will become B corporations, beneficent corporations. They're not quite nonprofits, They're, you know, they can be for-profits, but they have to operate in a way that benefits the community as one of their primary goals. My publisher, BK, that publishes my Hidden History series, is one of these kinds of corporations, for example. It's an increasingly popular thing. Exactly, and- Tom. And you're hitting right on what I've been saying about the Miami Dolphins. I guess ever since Don Shula, Dan Marino, the owner died, Joe Robbie died, is that these people are capitalists. They're basically what they are. Well, and sometimes not, they're worse than big, that. I mean, some, I have a big sometimes they're bigots, the Jason. But they're out there for the money. That's all they're out there for. They're not out there for winning. They're not out there for helping black people. They're not out there for, you know, caring about the fans, really. They're just yeah. out there to make money. Yeah, well, when and we lived in D.C., you had, you had the owner of the D.C. team who was, you know, embracing the Indians label. I mean, it was just, it, exactly. it, was, it was like exactly. he was just giving the finger to D.C. And if it had been a corporation, they would have been more answerable to the people. You would have had an internal structure of management and leadership. You'd have checks and balances, essentially, internally. I realize and corporations you, don't always end up that way, but, the, you know, yeah. B corporations yeah. are designed to be that way. And I think that's a good you, thing. And you know, Tom, I'm actually a person that's trying to create a, a company online that replicates what's going on in real life and people can, can join in to play the game and all that, the sports games. 
And my whole principle of this company is that it's co-op. There you go. Yeah. Uh, you and Richard Wolf and me. I mean, you know, I, my book Threshold ends with, with co-ops as the solution. And I wrote that like a decade ago. Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef to you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity and what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef-quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Boy, a lot of this kind of stuff in the news right now. Over on Raw Story, one of the top stories, black woman gets six years in prison over voting errors made by state officials. This is in Memphis. Uh, uh, Pamela Moses, Black Lives Matter activist, sentenced to six years and one day in prison for registering to vote after she had served her time for a 2015 conviction for perjury and tampering with evidence, which is there's apparently a small number of felonies that cause you to lose your right to vote. And, th and this is one of them. It's nuts. And then there was this is a young black doctor. She had just graduated from medical school and got a job you know, with a local hospital or whatever it was and, and had her first paycheck. Her name was Malika Mitchell-Stewart and she had this $16,000 check. It was like you know, all of her first pay. This is near Houston. And she walks into a J.P. Morgan Chase bank and says, I'd like to open an account. And they call the police and accuse her of fraud saying, well, this black woman couldn't possibly have $16,000. What are you talking about? My favorite, if you could call it that, of these stories is the one that just came across my desk a little bit ago. This is about a guy named Santor Thomas. He's 44 years old. He's African-American in Michigan. He's an Air Force veteran and he had sued his employer for racial discrimination. He had a, apparently a very good case against his former employer and he won. He took it to court and he won a $99,000 settlement. So he gets this check from his former employer for $99,000 for racial discrimination and walks into a branch of a bank in Livonia. Livonia is the suburb of Detroit. In fact, it's where our oldest daughter was born. 
walks into a bank in Livonia and says, I'd like to open an account and deposit this $99,000. They immediately call the police to come haul him away. And now he is suing the bank. <laughs> so you make 99,000 off the employer. And now he's probably gonna make a couple hundred thousand off the bank. I mean, you know, come on people, we've got it. This 21st century is 2022. It's, I don't understand, well, I do understand why this continues, but it's just infuriating. In the context of all these efforts now, we've got more than a dozen states where Republicans are making efforts to ban books and to stop the teaching of American history, specifically any part of American history that might have to do, by and large, with the, the history of slavery or the enslavement of human beings in the United States. And here we've got now Tom Cotton, the senator from uh, Arkansas, just came out and said, and I quote, this was an attack on the 1619 Project. He said, and I quote, the entire premise of the New York Times factually historically flawed 1619 project is that America is at root a systematically racist country to the core and irredeemable. Well, first of all, I would, I would say that the whole point of the 1619 project is that America is redeemable. That's why we're trying to educate people about our past so that we can reject it and move forward. Tom Cotton goes on to say, as the Founding Fathers said, slavery was a necessary evil upon which the Union was built. There was nothing necessary about slavery, Senator Cotton. There was nothing necessary about it at all. The North did just fine without slavery. You've got countries all over the world that have done just fine without slavery. But let's understand exactly what these people, what these white people in the South, whose statues are being taken down, believed, what they were saying. The vice president of the Confederacy was a guy named Alexander Stevens. And by the way, there's a great riff about this by Keith D.B. over on dailycoes.com about Tom Cotton, which is my, my source for much of this. Vice President Alexander Stevens, he was the vice president of the Confederacy. Right? The, the Confederacy, of course, was a group of states that broke away from the United States because they were being run by oligarchs. They were being run by a bunch of really, really rich people who owned very large plantations. In fact, let, let me give you just a little backstory on this, just because I think it's really important, and particularly for our caller who was like, well, why, why are we taking these statues down? Right around the turn of the century, of the 19th century, right around 1800, Eli Whitney invented the cotton gin. In fact, it was in 1797, as I recall, that he invented it. But around 1805, 1810, 1815, it started getting widely used. One cotton gin, this was a machine that could pull the seeds out of cotton, which was the most time-consuming part of growing and processing cotton and getting it to the market. And this one machine could do the work of 50 enslaved people. But it was really expensive. I mean, it would cost the equivalent of, in today's dollars, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars for one cotton gin. So what happened was the larger plantations bought cotton gins, and because they were now 50 times more efficient than the smaller operations growing cotton, they wiped them out. They could wipe them out in the marketplace, they could undersell them, they could run them out of business, and they started buying up all these smaller, uh, you couldn't even quite call them plantations, cotton farms until the South, and this started in the 18-teens and 1820s in a big way. 
And by 1830, in most of these southern cotton-growing states, these large plantation owners had basically monopolized the whole business. Just like we see right now with, for example, the airline industry. You know, there's only basically five major airlines anymore. You know, we, we used to have 30, 40 airlines competing with each other. The car industry, we've got, you know, half a dozen, a handful of car companies. Well, it was the same thing. It was, a, it was a market, a super concentration of the market. And these rich white people who owned these plantations didn't give a crap about the poor white people in the South. And they certainly didn't give a, a, a rat's ass about the, about the enslaved people, the, the black people that they had enslaved. In fact, it gets worse than that. I'll share that with you in just a moment. So what did they do? They reached out for political power. They took over the political machinery of each one of the southern states. And when the North started saying, no, you're supposed to have democracy down there. You're not supposed to run your state like a, like a, a dictatorship, which is what they were doing. They turned these states into police states. They terrorized the people. White people were terrorized. You, if you voted or if you spoke out against the plantation owners, you'd get killed. So these guys in the 1850s said, you know, screw this democracy thing. We like oligarchy. I wrote a book about this, The Hidden History of American Oligarchy, and it just lays it out in, in granular detail if you, if you ever want to know the, the specifics of what I'm telling you right now. The South had ceased to be a democracy. And so this, this little fascist pseudo-dictatorship in the South seceded from the United States. They became traitors to the United States. They said, no, we're going to go to war with you. And what they went to war over was the right of white people to enslave black people. It was just that simple. So this is what Vice President of the Confederacy, Alexander Stevens, said in his cornerstone speech. This is one of his most famous speeches coming out of the Confederacy in the early days of the Confederacy. He said, and I quote, our new government is founded upon exactly the opposite idea. And that would be the opposite of you know, egalitarianism or democracy. So our new government is founded upon exactly the opposite idea. Its foundations are laid, its cornerstone rests upon the great truth that the Negro is not equal to the white man, that slavery subordination to the superior race is his natural and normal condition. This, our new government, is the first in the history of the world based upon this great physical, philosophical, and moral truth. That's what the Confederacy was based on. George Wallace in 1963, when he said segregation today, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever, he declared himself not the governor of Alabama, the governor of the, quote, heart of the great Anglo-Saxon Southland. In 1964, when Mildred and Richard Loving were arrested for being married, she was black, he was white, in Virginia. Judge Leon Bazile, in 1964, in his ruling that they should go to jail for being married because they were different races, said, and I quote, Almighty God created the races, white, black, yellow, Malay, and red, and he placed them on separate continents. And but for the interference with his arrangement, there would be no cause for such marriages. The fact that he separated the races showed that he did not intend for the races to mix. Yeah, that was a federal court in 1964. Now, it was overturned in Virginia v. Loving in 65, I'm pretty sure it was. But 
there you go. This is the history of America that Republicans don't want taught in our schools. Now we've got also the, you know, they, they, they're trying to protect our children from mouse, M-A-U-S, which is the German word for mouse, M-O-U-S-E, because it's the story of the Holocaust. Only the characters in the book, and this is a, a book that was written by a fellow whose parents were in the Holocaust, whose mother committed suicide during the Holocaust, whose father you know, went through the camps in the Holocaust, this graphic novel that they just banned in Tennessee, the Tennessee school board, saying, and this is, what the, this is what the school board said, one of the most important roles of an elected board of education is to reflect the values of the, of the community it serves. Taken as a whole, the board, the board felt this work was simply too adult-oriented for use in our schools. Right. A graphic, an illustrated graphic novel about the Holocaust in Germany. We're talking about the systematic murder of five million Jewish people and five million non-Jewish people. Six million Jewish people, five million non-Jewish people. And, I mean, isn't it appropriate to... You see, the, the objection of the school board was that it seemed a little violent. Right. And there was a naked woman in there. Well, yeah, the, the author's mother, who couldn't live with the horrors that she saw in the Holocaust committed suicide and his, his, the author's father discovers her naked body in the bathtub. It's not really, uh, you know, salacious. It's not sexual or anything like that. Um, but this, this, is, this is what they're going to protect our children from? Don't learn about what Nazis did? Don't learn about what white supremacist racists in the South did? Don't learn about how, in the, how the South was actually taken over for about a 25-year period between the 1830s and the 1860s, taken over by a handful, about a thousand families in the South who owned these major plantations and ran the South as a police state against poor white people and obviously against the black people that they had enslaved. Let's not teach our children about that. We don't want them to know about that. Or, you know, Tom Cotton. Oh, yeah, well, it was just a necessary evil. Are you friggin' kidding me? Colleen in Louisville, Kentucky. Hey, Colleen, what's on your mind today? I, too, used the pandemic as a time to read. And one of the books I read, the book Cast by Isabel Wilkerson. Cast, C-A-T-S-E, or C-A-S-T, exactly. however yeah. you spell cast. C-A-S-T, yeah. right. And I read that book because pre-pandemic, I visited my library looking for a good read, and the, uh, the young librarian, who just happened to be a white woman, directed me to Wilkerson's first book, which is The Warmth of Other Suns, mm. which is equally just a really good book, talking about the migration from the south of African Americans in the early um, 1900s to uh, escape oppression. Hmm. And what I wanted to share with Donna is uh, the impact that these books have had on me. You know, being a white woman, I can't even pretend to know what it must be like to go through life in a, in a society that constantly or consistently oppresses, you know, you because of the color of your skin. But I want to share with Donna that I really think Wilkerson wrote these books for us, the white population, to educate us 
and uh, just to deepen our understanding of the black experience. And also, um, as a recently retired high school teacher, uh, the young people aren't going to, they're not putting up with this racism. Yeah. Um, and, it, you know, it was, it was after World War II when the young people in Germany forced the Germans to face the sins of the Holocaust. Um, they were tired of the silence there. So I just, I basically, I just want Donna to know she has allies. You know, you we're go. out here. We care. We want to fight, you know, for their rights. Thank you, Colleen. And I endorse what you're saying. I agree. And Cast is a brilliant book. Well, I'll just leave it at that. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to NetSuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. NetSuite.com slash Hartman. That's NetSuite.com slash Hartman. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Mike in Austin, Texas. Hey, Mike, what's on your mind today? I'm like a native from the Washington, D.C. area. Mm -hmm. I don't live there anymore. You know, they're going through that controversy of the Washington Redskins last two years, Washington football team. Now they just came out with their new logo, Commanders. Right. How, how are they going to abbreviate that? Is it, is it going to be Go Commies? Well, I mean, how, <laughs> I mean you live in D.C. How do you, how do you like command, Commanders? I you think know? it sounds very uh, military. I'm not fond of it. Okay, how long do you think it's, you think it's going to last a little bit longer than Washington football team? Oh, I, th I think it will. I think, you know, brands acquire meaning over time. And, yeah. you know, it sounds weird to us because we've never heard it before. But, you know, a year or two down the road, it's, uh, you know, I mean, what's a Seahawk, you know? I, I don't think it's going to be a problem. I, I just think it's, it lacks imagination. You, don't think it's gonna, you, you really don't think it's going to offend anybody? No, no. Do you? You know, from the word. Seriously? Well, I just... Well, no, I just look at it. It's like, you know, commanders, when you look at it, it's like person in power. It's well, I think that's, that's it's a play on commander-in-chief. Like, the White House is in Washington, D.C. This is the team from, correct, the, from the White House, or, the, you know, for Washington, D.C., and they're probably the most famous parts of Washington, D.C. are the Capitol and the White House. And the, in the White House, you got the commander-in-chief. So, hey, we've got the Washington commanders. That's a nice way of putting it. I think so. Really I think is. it's probably more of that than, than, you know, looking at the Pentagon and thinking, you know, we're going to make this the Pentagon. Mike, I got to run, but thanks for the call. Nice to hear from you. MJ in Seattle. Hey, MJ, what's up? 
Well, I am calling about the controversy of veterans' benefits after World War II not going to black veterans. And I was convinced all the way up until last summer that it was fair and it had gone out to everyone. But I was getting to know a friend I I had known remotely. My husband and I, he was visiting in our area, and we invited him out for lunch. Being acquainted, kind of doing a little family history thing, you know, what were our fathers like? And I said, well, you know, the, the veteran's benefit made a big difference in my family because mm-hmm. my dad got that teaching degree and he had steady work after mm-hmm. that. And there was also a mortgage benefit. Yep. New friend just kind of rolled back and she said, well, my dad was absolutely furious because he fought. He fought. He was not eligible. Black people were not eligible for those benefits. And I said, are you sure? Because I could hardly believe it. Yeah. And he said, oh, yeah, no, he was bitter about it to the end of his days. Yeah. Was it that they couldn't get the benefits from the government or was it that they couldn't? Because my dad bought a house with a VA loan, but it had to go through a bank. It was guaranteed by the VA. And banks were saying to black people, we're not going to, we're not going to, you know, the red redlining thing, we're not going to sign off on this. And colleges had, you know, their choice of who they're going to admit and who they're not. There was a sudden influx of people coming into colleges. They were just keeping black people out. Is it that simple, or was there something backdoor gotcha built into the GI Bill? I, that's what I'm not certain of. Lynn in Los Angeles. Hey, Lynn, what's on your mind today? Hi, I've been trying to call about this for a long time. The um, issue that you were just talking about, slavery. I recently saw a wonderful documentary by Jeffrey Robinson, an ACLU attorney, and it's called Who We Are, A Chronicle of Racism in America. And I learned things from that film that I was never taught in school. And I'm very angry that my education was incomplete and i'm thinking future generations who are not being taught the truth now may feel the same way in time but he taught things like um you know the the numbers the amount of money that went into slavery in 1790 50 years before the civil war uh they uh had 700,000 slaves and they produced 1.5 million million pounds of cotton but 1859 it was Four million slaves that produced 2.5 billion with a B pounds of cotton, and he's, he gives statistics like that. And here's an interesting fact: the New York City mayor recommended that New York pull out of the union because they were making so much money in Wall Street on slavery. Yeah. What well, kind I, of on slavery? cotton specifically? It's in my book. No. No, no, insurance. They insured slaves as loss of property, just like we do with our cars. If, right. you know, if you lose your slaves and if they get sick and die or, you know, run away, we, they made money on insuring that. Yes. And it just is so upsetting. Well, the, um, and by the way, just one last thing. I, I went to the, I've been researching this ever since I saw that film, going into the rabbit hole. Today, Oh, no, tomorrow, there is a workshop for teachers in Arizona and probably in other states, and it's the um, curriculum for this workshop for teachers, history teachers, is coming out of Texas, and it does teach what that caller was saying that said, oh, slavery was a necessary evil. And that's what Tom Cotton said, the senator from Arkansas. Right. Right, right. And that's their talking point. And that's why it's real important for people to see this this video. I mean, not, not video, documentary by Jeffrey Robinson. 
who we are. Mm-hmm. And if you can't go to the theater and see it, he's got a great TED talk mm-hmm. on uh, the truth about the Confederacy. But we really do need to get the truth out uh, and just keep countering what the the right wing is saying because sure. it is so pervasive and important so <laughs> uh, well thank said. you very much yeah thank you thank and, and and i i agree with you i'm outraged that i didn't learn these things when i was in school i frankly i didn't know i, I didn't know most of the stuff even 10 years ago i didn't know the history of the south i didn't realize that the south mm-hmm. had ceased to be a democracy by 1835 um, until last year or the year before last when I started researching my book, The Hidden History of American Oligarchy. I had no idea. I mean, these are the, it's just, it's, and, and, and I don't think most people, you know, they're not teaching this in the schools. Uh, you know, it's the war of northern aggression. No. <laughs> Conchita in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Hey, Conchita, what's on your mind? Hi, today? hi. Yes, glad to be with you again. I'm your Uganda, New Orleans lady. Oh, yeah. um, I have taught at North Carolina A&T State University, home of the sit-ins, for over 35 years, and I'm a product of Xavier University and Howard University, so I'm very sad about what's going on with the bomb threats. But what I wanted to add, and uh, your uh, your former speaker just now uh, is adding on to what I wanted to say, it's not just the South, it was the whole nation that took part in the triangular Atlantic slave trade. And that the cash crops, sugar, the Dutch chocolate, Suriname and islands in the Caribbean, your your textile mills in uh, England uh, that that profited. In fact, they wanted the Confederacy to win, and all the ports where the slave ships left, Liverpool and so on. That this was a world phenomenon. The North was just as guilty. New York was built on the backs of free slave trade. There have been burial grounds found in New York. Wall Street was the marketplace for Africans when they came in. So we have to look at the Industrial Revolution that came about because of the free economic labor. It was not just the South. It was the nation. In fact, global white supremacy and economics. And that's how the whole thing about Jews used as a racial scapegoat for the failure of the, of the economics in Germany. And that's how Nazi Germany used the Jews as a racial kind of scapegoat. All of this stuff has been upsetting me because of what's happening with the HBCUs. But you have to look, at, it's not just the South. We need to take credit, just as the other person said, insurance, stock market, the North benefited from the Atlantic slave trade, free economic labor. And uh, Georgetown, those universities have found out how they came about. White elites went to those big universities with their free slave labor. So we all need to bear up and say we are guilty. This is our past. The civil rights movement, the sit-ins, the Civil Rights Act of 64 changed a lot. And we cannot go back. And that's the problem we have today. Yeah, and these guys do want to go back, and, and you're absolutely right. In the exactly. previous caller, too, the, the mayor of New York City, when the South seceded, the mayor of New York mm-hmm. City advised the citizens of his city that New York should join the South and secede from the Union because they were making yeah. so much money on the slave trade and on the cotton trade. Conchita, thank you. Thank you for contributing to the conversation. I really appreciate it. Carol in Republic, Michigan. Hey, Carol, what's on your mind today? Didn't the whole thing of slavery begin by just lazy white people? And once they realized how lucrative it was, it became lazy, greedy white people. 
And haven't they evolved to be just parasitic predators at this point? I would put it in a slightly different frame, Carol, uh, because a lot of the people who owned slaves and profited from slaves were probably working more than an eight-hour day. I don't think it's so much lazy as exploitative. They were, this was capitalism, right? This was capitalism at its peak. And the whole point, or one of the points of capitalism, is for those who own the business or own the capital to make money off the labor of other people. And if you can get the labor for free, you are the richest capitalist around, as opposed to having to pay for the labor. And so this was just a way to, to uh, amplify and expand arguably the most brutal form of capitalism the world has ever seen. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah. Okay. Your point is well taken. Moretta in Berwyn, Illinois. Hey, Moretta, what's up? Listen, I want to speak on some things that you spoke on earlier. First thing was about the Constitution. The Constitution is about the Republicans and the, the, the Democratical Party. The Constitution states in the First Amendment that the freedom of religion and the speech and the press has the right to gather peacefully and have the right to speak against anything that speaks against itself. And this is under the Bill of Rights, the First Amendment. Yep. The, the whole part of the democracy of what the, uh, uh, the system of government speaks on and the way that things are going on today, monarchy, monarchy is a power that changes hands through kings or queens. It's an absolute. And any time that we look at the democracy that is ruled by the people under the power of changes through hands of voting, and any time that any government has joined together to have a discontent about the Republican Party is called, it is called under the U.S. Constitution, it is called uh, a dictatorship. A dictatorship is a power yeah. that has a more powerful hand than the other party. I'm not speaking on trying to obtain some justification of what Donald Trump is, Republican Party, but mm. any time we see the democracy is under one rule and one choice and one way, then we see the Bibles leave out of the schools. We see the children are now being taught irrelevancy about their sexuality. We're now seeing an uprise of individuals that claim to be different men and different women to bring some litigation to the forefront of our children. Yeah, Moretta, I, you know, you're traveling down a road I'm not all that excited about. Um, let me just, you know, if you think we should have our Bibles in our schools, uh, let me just share with you uh, one, you know, this because it's the, this moral panic about books in schools is, oh my God, there's obscenities in them. Uh, this is from Ezekiel 23. Yet she became more and more promiscuous as she recalled the days of her youth when she was a prostitute in Egypt. There she lusted after her lovers whose genitals were like those of donkeys and whose emission was like those of horses. So you longed for the lewdness of your youth when in Egypt your bosom was caressed and your young breasts fondled. I mean, that's literally in the Bible. <laughs> These people are like, no, no, we need to have more Bibles in our school. Really? Come on. Dwayne in Odessa, Texas. Hey, Dwayne, what's on your mind today? Yeah, Tom, the whole purpose of what is, what is being done is to hide it. That's why they don't want it taught. Mm -hmm. uh, the Nazism in World War II is a blueprint for a modern-day uh, dictatorship. 
That's why they don't want it taught, because it, that's what threw a bright light on what Trump was doing. Then people yep. that go to defend him, they go, oh, well, Trump, Trump's not like Hitler. No, but if you look back at 1933, what he was doing to our country was exactly the same thing that was being done in Germany in 1933. What who was and, doing to our country? Trump? What Trump and the MAGA's, what he was doing is the same thing. Oh, I see. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, well, yeah, there were, yeah. there were, you know, it was called the American First Movement back in the 30s, and it was, it was a Nazi movement. And, and in fact, yeah. it was a, it was a pro-Hitler Nazi movement, right up until, well, right, in, right they, up until 1941. That's how they're doing it. That the first they took civics out, so you didn't know how government would run. Now they're trying to change it, where you don't have a blueprint to be able to see a dictatorship or authoritarianism and and market is what it is. Yeah. The whole deal like uh, the FBI and the New England Medical Journal, the top ten characteristics of a cult leader, Trump fits. Oh yeah. That no, he, he he is a Trump leader. Dwayne, I I think you've nailed it. And they of course they don't want us our children to learn about Nazis because that's what these people aspire to. Dwayne, thank you. Johan in Los Angeles. Hey Johan, what's up? I would just add on to the cornerstone speech that you had just a moment ago. Mm -hmm. Go With for us, it. all of uh, the white race, however high or low, rich or poor, are equal in the eye of the law, not so with the Negro. Subordination is his place. He, by nature or by the curse against the Canaan, as fitted for the condition which he occupies in our system. Yeah, this is from the cornerstone speech from, from the vice president yeah. of the Confederacy. Back in eighteen, whatever it was, eighteen sixty-one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We had this document. Yeah, I mean, this that that. I, I I'm just astonished that an entire yeah. political party in the United States would say the position that we're going to take into the election, the position that we're going to stand on, the hill that we're going to die on, as it were, or or win on is that we don't want our young people to know the history of our country. I just wanted to flag for you, by the way, there's all this attention being focused on Joe Biden nominating a black woman for the Supreme Court and, and as yet unnamed. He has nominated uh, a black woman for the Fed, for the Federal Reserve. She would be, in the 108-year history of the Fed, she would be the first black woman to be a member of the Fed. Her name is Lisa Cook. She is an economist from Michigan State University. She is renowned for the research that she has done, particularly on racial inequality and, and violence, and the relationship between racial inequality and violence and economic growth. Now, this woman is just wicked, wicked smart and has more than the experience necessary but she's black and she's female, so of course the Republicans are out there going, well, we don't think she's qualified. Keep an eye on this one and keep your outrage up. Jay in Fairfield, California. Hey, Jay, what's on your mind? Hey, Tom. Yeah, I was uh, thinking about the NFL thing. It, it's two possibilities. One, I could see people being trying to talk, talk, trying to talk people into throwing games when they're at the bottom. When teams are going for the Super Bowl or any kind of championship, I can't see them convincing players to throw the game some way. I mean, how does that look 
ten people get in the room and say, "Okay, you're the quarterback. Make sure you do this. Make sure you." I no, just don't you don't. Do you don't do it that way, Jay. If you, if you, yeah. all you have to do is talk to the coach, because the coach the coach has a, an enormous influence not only over the morale of the team, but also on the plays that are going to be executed. And you know, there are some plays that that some teams do really, really well. I mean, this is true across most team sports. You know, basketball as well. Um, it, there are some plays that some teams do really well, and there's some plays that some teams just don't do well at all. You know, you've got you know yeah, some well, some teams like, who are really good guy, at rushing you know or the, passing. Right. You know, the guy who called and said that one particular well, Denver versus Carolina. Yeah. Denver's Denver's defense won that game. It, it really had little to do with Peyton Manning. Yeah. But now I do. But I do understand, like with the with regards to Colin Kaepernick, he definitely got blackballed because oh, yeah. the last year he played, he his stats were better than probably sixty percent of the quarterbacks who were in the league. So it had nothing to do with a decline in his skills. That was a poor excuse for yeah. what they did to him. No, I think I think Jay, this is this is all, or at least the, you know the uh, what's his name, the, the this coach who's who's yelling about this um, is is Brian point, Flores. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Uh, yeah, Brian. What, what Brian Flores is, is pointing out is that uh, it, it was to get a better draft pick next time around, and 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 right. you know. I get how the system but, works, but and, and they're playing. That to players, but suggesting that no, to you players, don't have to suggest it to the players. It. You can, as the coach, you can you can determine, you know, an awful lot about how good a team is going to or how well a team is going to do. And and I think that that you know, I, I I I'm with you, Jay. I don't believe that anybody sat down with any of the players and said we're going to throw this game. I don't think you know right. if, if anybody had, it would have made it to the press. But now yeah, that you've got one you coach talking. Who, yeah, it kind of reminds you of people who say the government started the virus so they could create a vaccine. No, but you've got, you know, you've got one coach who, as Brian Flores has come out and said, this is the case. And now you've got another coach who's come out and said, yeah, somebody, you know, one of the owners asked me to throw a game, too. Keep in mind, I mean, there's I 33 billionaires no, out there who own that. these clubs. I can't see that, but as far as, like, going for championships, I can't see those games being predetermined like that guy said. Well, you know, I... I don't know, and and that's the thing. I don't think any of us know, Jay, and that's that's the thing that I'm hoping we find out soon enough. Is like, is and Jay, thanks for the call. Is football like wrestling? You know, Donald Trump's sport. <laughs> it's where where basically it's theater. It's just entertainment, and you know, sometimes people win, sometimes they lose. It's all predetermined, or not. Is it real sport? You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. And frankly, until this last week, it never occurred to me to even ask that question, which is pretty amazing. (sighs) The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Annie in Sugar Grove, North Carolina. Hey, Annie, what's on your mind? Oh, I just wanted to add to the the whole GI Bill and... Mm -hmm. and, uh, and people of color are not able to benefit from that. Right. Another thing I learned probably in the last 10 years that um, the white people that benefited from the GI Bill in their deeds, not across the board, but it maybe just sort of dependent on the area of the country, 
in their deeds was language saying that they could not sell that home to a person of color. That's right, and that was legal up so until the was, 60s. Yeah, yeah, because I have an uncle. Well, he, he passed away about a year and a half ago, 95 years old. This is in Colorado where I have family. And he benefited from the GI Bill. He was in World War II. My, my mom's, one of my mom's brothers, all four were there in World War II. And he bought the house for 20 grand in 1962. Yeah. And he worked in a grocery store. You know, I mean, I remember being 10 years old hearing the adults say things like, oh, wow, he just made the mortgage payment. But when you're 10, you know, I yeah. didn't know what mortgage was. <laughs> anyway, my uncle lived in that house his whole life, raised their three children. My aunt died several years back before he passed away. And that house sold for $475,000. Yeah, it's amazing, it huh? And, and so my cousins are splitting that, my three cousins are splitting that money up. Yep, and this is called multi-generational um, wealth, and blacks were excluded from that, and not just blacks, Hispanics as well, and a lot of Asians oh, and yeah, because, Native Americans. Because out west, it was, it was Mexicans that yeah. weren't allowed. There, there you go. Annie, thank you, thank you. That's a great, uh, great story and a great punctuation mark on that, whole, on that whole rant. Julius in Atlanta, Georgia. Hey, Julius, thanks for listening to SiriusXM. What's up? Hi, Tom. It's my first time calling. I'm not just black. Well, thank you. Yeah, you need to turn your radio down. <laughs> thank you. I did. I took it off Bluetooth. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, but about the NFL uh, conversation with a couple of guests ago you were talking with, uh, I, I have to disagree. I say they they do because it is a professional sport. Wait a second. And Who's the, the? Are you saying that players are actually throwing the games, or are you, or are you agreeing with me that it can be limited to the to the coaches, and that the coaches might be throwing the games? I don't think the the players are doing what the coaches and the owners tell them to do. They're hired just like you know employees. Are. Right, but there's a difference between being told to do a really risky play that involves a long pass that probably is not going to go anywhere and is going to cause you to lose the game versus being told, hey, I want you to do something stupid and lose the game or fumble the ball. What, I know some professional athletes, wrestlers, all of, all of them, baseball, basketball, and all. I've done a lot of work for them over the years. I'm in the high-end cabinet market in Atlanta, Georgia. Mm -hmm. And I've been told by numerous ones that I got to know real well that, yeah, he said, uh, they'll come in there and say, well, you know, make it look good, make it tight. But we're not going to win today, and you just you figure it out. Wow! See if that's being driven by illegal gambling. Um, that it is be. like Look major. Look at the last time the Atlanta Falcons was in the in the Super Bowl, they blew out Tom Brady and them in the first half, and then Atlanta just folded in the second half. And Brady was not on his game that game. Yeah. And, but they allowed them to come back and come back and come back, and the coaches yeah. made some terrible. I'm not the coaches, the refs I, made some terrible calls. Yeah, I and know. they won the game, and Atlanta didn't. I'm I'm guessing, Julius, that uh, that uh, this, uh, that Brian here has uh, Brian Flores has has opened a can of worms that the NFL a did not want open, but. Uh, uh, is not this is not going to go away this this is going to get bigger Julius thank you for the call uh, Ben in Chicago hey Ben you wanted to weigh in you're going into two completely different ends of the universe when you're talking about throwing games or not trying your best because you're at the bottom of the league and you're looking for a high draft pick versus throwing games for gambling purposes or for oh I know at the high end I know complete so 
I think that stuff at the high end, there's no proof of it. And I think getting into that stuff is just conspiracy. But uh, the, the, the current issue, I think, is not surprising at all. Uh, you know, as a fan, your team is 2-11, and 11, and you're kind of hoping they don't win any more games. Because you you're want them to get a good draft pick lose. next time around. Yeah, that's all the excitement you have. And you've probably lost all confidence in your starters anyway. Yeah. And so if your coach, if your coach puts in some second-string guys to take a look at them or rest, rest the injured players, that's not going to surprise or upset anybody. Oh, so, interesting. Uh, <laughs> so, so this is just yeah. like kind of everybody knows this, anybody who really understands football. Well, I'd say that everybody, everybody hopes it's happening. <laughs> you know, if you're, if it's your team, you don't want your two and twelve team to to win any more games. You want a shot the next sure. year. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't think it's a I don't think it's a black white thing in this case. I mean, obviously, the the other part of the issue, which is checking off boxes and not giving, you know, and cheating the rule, that's a problem. But. But the idea of asking coaches to, to lose games when they when they have a losing team, I don't think that shocks anybody. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you, Eric. That you know you're adding to my database here. <laughs> as, as I said, I'm not. I don't follow football typically. Edgar in Muskegon Heights, Michigan. Hey, Edgar, we got a, a minute here to go. What's yeah, up? I I, I want to talk about the officiating in those games. I've watched four plays in that Kansas City. Uh, uh, they, they they were ahead by 20, 21 and three. I was four of calls that should have been made, open calls, mm-hmm. running to a a, a a a a punt guy catching a punt, hitting a guy out of bounds, grabbing and tugging on the jersey, and you could see it on the on the replay. Four of them. I, I didn't last the last uh, quarter, but those they should have been called. That could have changed that whole game there. Does football have instant replay where they can reevaluate the ref's call? I thought they did. Yeah, but they didn't. These these were open, and I I I, I have officiated before. I've coached a, a little league football in, uh-huh. before, and I know that there were some officials that caused us to lose a lot of games. And yeah. there was one basketball official that got he, he got kicked out of us. Edgar, I'm sorry. I got to run here. I'm I'm just flat out of time, but great talking with you. Thank you. Thank you for being with us today. Don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires you. So get out there, get active, tag. You're it. Pass the good word along. Be good to yourself and people around you. Stay safe. We'll see you tomorrow. Listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.